This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the CUSA Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Joe Lonergan, Eric Henry here with you once again to talk about, um, well, look, for this past weekend in college football it was kind of a bizarre weekend. I mean, we saw Jacksonville State beat Florida State on a last second Hail Mary. We saw a few other crazy upsets. And, you know, as we'll get into later, there were some just odd instances of uh, things going on at College Football Stadium this weekend. But that being said, for CUSA, it was pretty much business as usual. Not too many surprising results, uh, unless you disagree, Eric. Yeah, Joe. First off, I get the pleasure of being on the same coast as you for the first time taping this podcast. And dear God, you West Coasters, I don't know how you do it. I, I wake up and I, and I realize it's, it's 9 a.m. and I, I got, you know, like my midday programming that I'm normally watching. It's just it, it's all bizarre world over here. I got to get back to the left coast. Yeah. God's uh, God's intended time zone. But nevertheless, I will spare you my uh, time zone rant for another day. Yeah, as far as the play in Conference USA, I guess not too many results out of the ordinary. The only one, of course, we'll get into is the Louisiana Tech one. You know, getting pushed by and that and that, Joe, I have to take for all of our tech fans listening. That is my fault because I cracked the joke about Southeast Louisiana being like the FCS Southeast team for NCAA football. And they heard that and showed them that they are far from the FCS Southeast team from, <laughs> from NCAA football. So my apologies there. But yeah, outside of that, uh, I guess another run of the mill weekend in Conference USA, right? Yeah, I, I tried to tell you about that Southeast Louisiana offense, but you know we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, so I guess let's just start with uh, recapping uh, the Friday night game from this past weekend, which was Boise State and UTEP. Broncos won that one 54 to 13. Honestly, not too much to say about this one here. Boise State as a program, as we know, is just light years ahead of where UTEP is in many respects. Uh, we're talking about a program that seemingly just learned how to walk again with UTEP. And Boise State was out there like trying to run the hurdles, doing some like Usain Bolt type stuff, if we're putting this in track terms. Um, if you want to get into specifics, three interceptions from Gavin Hardison is an issue. You can't turn the ball over that many times, no matter who you're playing. I mean, Boise just basically did whatever they wanted here, and they scored in basically every way you could think of. They scored on on offense, in the pass game, the run game. They had a punt return for a touchdown. They were kicking field goals. Uh, complete win for the Broncos. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to get to the point you talk about, which is Gavin Hardison. Our buddy Adrian Bradis from the ESPN El Paso radio station out there in El Paso wrote a piece, and I wanted to make a note of retweeting it on Underdog Dynasty's Twitter account this week. And the piece essentially is in support of Gavin Hardison. And I think despite the three-interception game, you have to stick with him as the quarterback. Here's why. You can't expect that he's going to have the same results against Boise State that he had against New Mexico State and the Fighting Wildcats of Bethune-Cookman, the pride of Daytona Beach here, or where I normally am in Florida, not here in Vegas. But nevertheless, 
my point is, Joe, you would have to agree with this. After the instability they've had the quarterback position prior to last year, you got to give Gavin Hardison. He has been, A, the most successful passing quarterback they've had in quite some time, and B, just any real hope or semblance of a passer that they can build with, it lies in Gavin Hardison. So, I mean, I don't have too much in relation to the game because, as you mentioned, the result is what we expected. I just hope that minor fans aren't a little too impatient with Gavin Hardison because what could you expect? I completely agree with with you and Adrian, Eric. Like with Gavin Hardison, you look at the leadership and at times inconsistent, but just really solid play he's brought to the quarterback position. And I can't imagine why you would be calling for him to to get pulled at this point in the game. Or by game, I mean, you know the season, the game of life. Um, but with the with the momentum that this program's built, you want to keep that going. And Boise State's not where they used to be as a program, but they're still very solid. And like you said, it's a pretty drastic jump in the level of competition from what they were facing against Bethune Cookman and New Mexico State. So, you know, obviously, you know, if you're Gavin Hardison himself, I'm sure you're rattled by throwing three interceptions in the game against uh, sort of at the same level. They're both G5 teams, but at the same time, like you have to understand where this team was. And if you're a fan, you have to understand that, like, again, take into account where this program was and where they've progressed to. Of course, not everything's going to be perfect. If you are seriously saying to yourself, Gavin Hardison should not be QB one based on this one performance. That's, that's silly to me. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I just couldn't agree more, especially considering the fact that this is what, again, if you're a minor fan, this is what you wanted. You haven't had two wins to start the year in a very long time, right? So granted, while not against FBS, well, one, not against an FBS team, the other one uh, against a FBS team that's really struggled over the past decade. But nevertheless, Gavin Hardison is the best hope. And just a connection he has with Jacob Cowan. If you want to look at the, the Boise State game, I think he had six catches for a buck 19. Sure, some of that's you know coming from behind, but still. You don't want to start tinkering with that kind of, you know, quarterback receiver tandem just for the sake of it. So Gavin Hardison is the guy and minor fans. Listen, you have a legit shot. You get four more wins and you can look on the schedule and say there's 50 50 games to get four more wins. You're going bowling. So let's try to keep the positive momentum in that direction. Absolutely. Just keep all of your playmakers in a positive headspace and you can get to that point if you're UTEP. Uh, so with that, then let's talk about uh, the one that I've been dreading, and that's uh, Army beating Western Kentucky 38 to 35. Uh, coming off of last week's WKU game, Eric, I was concerned about the top's rushing defense. In that game, UT Martin's running game looks pretty competent, but Bailey Zappi put up seven touchdown passes, so it wasn't an issue in the grand scheme of things. It's to run better than what they did. And they did not rise to the occasion in that respect in this game. 339 rush yards for Army and then another 77 yards through the air, which for Army may as well be 200 given how that triple option offense seems to work. And they really ran it to perfection. It seemed like on nearly every play or at least every scoring play for Army, uh, the whole of Western's defense just wanted to kind of crash down in the middle. And then Army, as they do, would find ways to pitch it outside or cut back to where their receivers and their tight ends did a fantastic job of blocking downfield and open it up for a big gain or a score. And a few times when Western's defense did crash down in that middle, 
Army just threw it over the top, and there was no defenders around at all. Um, and I don't know how they just weren't prepared for that in this scenario, given you know exactly what you're getting with a Jeff Monken team. Yeah, Joe, you make a unique point in terms of the Western Kentucky defense and maybe them overloading up the middle. I want to state one thing. I think it's obvious through two games that the Western Kentucky run defense and specificity defensive line is really missing the presence of Ricky Barber, who, of course, now resides at UCF in Central Florida, right? And maybe as a result of that, there is a feeling, a need to want to overcompensate, right? Because you have two great ends, D'Angelo Malone and Juwan Jones, but those guys can't be everywhere and can't do everything. Now, I, in terms of what I saw from this game, in the effort of full disclosure, I turned this one off and it was 35-14, right? And so I, for those of you who may not have seen this game, the final score just is not indicative of what that ball game was. And kudos to Western for you know putting up a fight and making it close to the end. But Army dominated that game for really three and a half quarters before uh, that furious kind of run there at the end. And Joe, you mentioned something, and this is what I think is just so debilitating when you're facing that type of offense. There was a third and 14. Western was able to force a third and 14 early in the fourth quarter, which they would have got the ball back, stopped him, you know, maybe held him to a field goal. And they just, classic Army offense, they went, ran that option, and got 18 yards right into you know range for a touchdown. And that, to me, was just indicative of what that game was. Now, you mentioned the run defense. I want to bring around to something that I mentioned in my three things we learned about Conference USA over the weekend. And that is if Western Kentucky is going to win CUSA, they're going to do so in a manner that no team has done so in recent history. I went back and looked at the past uh, 12 winners since 2010, going back to the last year that UCF won the old Conference USA in 2010. No team has won Conference USA for rushing for fewer than 155 yards per game. Right now, while it's only a two-game sample size, of course, that number is bound to improve. Western is only rushing for 75 yards per game. Now, for those of you at home, specifically top fans, tops fans, excuse me, are probably saying, well, Eric, you know, you idiot, we're doing the air raid, right? And obviously, some of the short passing game is going to suffice for the rushing attack. And that is true. I am not denying that. For Tyson Helton and Zach Kitley to do this, they're buying all in on that this philosophy is going to work. I'm just saying that if the output doesn't at least match something closer to the levels that Zach Kitley put up at Houston Baptist, which was the highest yards per game throughout the entire season, the average was 128.3 in the 2018 year. I believe they went five and seven that year, or 2019 went five and seven. So just understand that. Western may very well still go on to do great things this year, and I believe they will. I've been a full-sale, wholesale believer in Bailey Zappi. And Bailey Zappi's numbers may be great, phenomenal, but they are going to defy the recent odds in Conference USA. Again, going back to 2010 in terms of doing it a completely different way. The team, the last team to rush for, uh, again, I mentioned a team that rushed for 155.3 yards, uh, which was the fewest over that 13-game sample or 13-season sample, that was 2015 Western Kentucky. <laughs> so it just goes to show you, you know, it's going to be tough, but it is something I think you have to keep an eye on the production they're going to be able to get in running the game and in, in running the ball and in defending the run because Army may have exposed a formula to defeat them. Yeah. Um, as far as the rushing offense goes for Western Kentucky, I definitely see where you're coming from. And based on just the, um, 
you know, st- statistical evidence that you provided, there's something to that. I think the running game definitely needs to improve. That being said, I don't think Bailey Zappi, you know, even in this game where you could argue this was not his his best game in terms of the grand scheme of his career, but he still threw for 435 yards. You know, that being said, all I can think about is how disappointed I am in this defense. Like you look at what is left of their schedule um, in this early part of the season, they have Indiana, Michigan State, and then UTSA coming to town their next three games. So, and, and then you look at all of those teams and how good the uh, rushing attacks there can be um, with probably, you know, oddly enough, UTSA probably being the best example of that right now. But still, there's a decent chance that Western Kentucky starts the year one and four, which would basically mean that they would have to win out in order to even get a decent bowl game. Forget, you know, winning the East and being in contention for for the title, because this team was a lot of people's pick as like a dark horse to possibly win the league. But frankly, with these two performances, I'm not really seeing that happen if they can't slow down uh, some of these other offenses that they're facing. Yeah, Joe, listen, you know, we won't spend too much more time on Western, but I'll just kind of give you my POV here. There's two ways of looking at this, right? The Western defense, you kind of knew coming into the year was going to be a confluence of circumstances because of all the pieces are transitioning in and the pieces that were transitioning out, right? You think in theory, those things will gel together, especially as the season progresses and, you know, new defensive coordinator, et cetera. The reason why I'm being so specific as to the rushing attack on offense is because that is the choice and that they are going to do things that way, right? If that makes sense. Whereas, you know, defense, you kind of expect melding, mixing all these new pieces. That is a concerted choice by Tyson Hilton that we're going to do things this way. And again, he has to buy in wholesale. I, I, I'm not telling him that he, he can, you know, half step with the air raid. I just think they're going to have to get a little bit more production than, the two game sample size. Yeah, that's fair. It's a long season, but with the high level of competition that Western's facing the next three weeks, uh, it, it could be a toss up. Um, th- and this is the quick thing I wanted to say. This reminds me of Middle Tennessee State in 2019 when they played Michigan, Duke, and Iowa all within the first four weeks of the season. A lot of people could argue that like that was one of the better you know offenses that we've seen uh, Middle Tennessee have in the last few years, especially with Asher O'Hara and the preseason hype that went into that for them and all that. And they lost all three of those games and started the season one and three. And uh, they, I think they did make it to the conference championship game somehow, but ended up losing that one. Anyway, uh, let's talk about MTSU some more with uh, their loss to Virginia tech. And uh, the score of that one was 35 to 14 for MTSU. Um, it was good to see chase Cunningham get some snaps late in the game. Uh, Bailey Hawkman played okay in getting the start. Uh, throwing for 207, a touchdown and a pick. Uh, Eric, we talked a lot last week about what needs to shift in this MTSU running game. And while this maybe isn't the best example given the opponent, I still think this game was a solid example of why it needs to shift uh, with a net of only 66 yards in the day and an average of only 1.8 yards per carry. Joe, that was what held... Middle Tennessee State back. I had a chance to watch this game and the Florida Atlantic game at the same time before heading out to FIU Stadium to cover the FIU Texas State game. Um, and it, it was clear, you know, Middle Tennessee had some opportunities. They played Virginia Tech very tough for a half. But A, 
Virginia Tech's quarterback, and forgive me, his name is escaping me right now, um, you know, kind of an elusive dual threat kid. They knocked him out of the, of the game for a little while with a shoulder injury. DQ Thomas hit him, uh, not late hit or anything like that, but knocked him out on the sidelines, and they knocked him out. But still, he was able to kind of extend the drives with his legs on third down, and that hurt them. And then Middle Tennessee's inability to get out of second and longs and third and longs really hurt them. And you mentioned something as far as it being good to see Chase Cunningham in the game. And this brought me to a very interesting point. I definitely want your thoughts on this. I want to give credit to Michael Gallagher of the Nashville Post, who wrote this on September 7th. Middle Tennessee wants quarterback rotation, but Hockman making it hard to understand why. Apparently, and again, Michael's on the ground there, so he would know better than us, that Rick Stockstill still has you know, kind of that feeling that he wants to see both Bailey Hockman and Chase Cunningham, and maybe you know Mike DeLeo as well, who saw some time last year and i guess my position would be why and listen i rick stockstill's forgotten more football than i'll ever know so there's that and he certainly has had his success with quarterbacks in middle tennessee but you bring in bailey hockman right from nc state you had these guys on your roster as is and as someone who covered a team last year that could not get their quarterback situation straight and to be completely transparent uh, you know, they had a starting quarterback who mentioned after the win in, against Long Island, Max Bortenschlager said that the rotation wasn't beneficial for any of us, right? In terms of getting themselves any real stability. I just don't see why the need to, especially when you go and bring in a guy and still want to, you know, use multiple guys. And Bailey Hockman's played. It, the team, the, the loss last week wasn't on Bailey Hockman, you know? So I, I find it curious. But a good point you raised as far as the rushing attack and definitely want your thoughts on the quarterback situation. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a few times on this show over the last three, four years that we've been doing it. The rotating quarterback system barely ever works. And even when you have teams that uh, have multiple quarterbacks who are, you know, QB1 material, you know, they succeed because somebody got hurt and they just stepped up. It, it Offensive success depends so much on consistency and chemistry and you are stepping on your own feet. If you keep trying to rotate quarterbacks in and out, it's the same if you were, you know, constantly throwing different offensive line setups in there. And it's, you know, if you don't allow a group of players to gel and develop that chemistry and just, you know, just get the snaps to get better, then you're not going to progress as a team. So like you said, I mean, Rick Stockstill has been coaching longer than I've either of us have been alive. That being said, I, I don't understand why they're taking this route when they they have, you know, Bailey Hockman, who's as as solid as, you know, I, I think most of the other quarterbacks in CUSA. And I don't know. There's just so many other things they should be worrying about as a program right now than, you know, rotating their quarterbacks in and out. Right. And we've talked about it throughout the offseason and in the early part of this year. You know, Scott Schaefer trying to get that defense back. That's one thing to be concerned about, as you mentioned, the rushing attack and the struggles they had kind of, you know, getting the putting their quarterback in position in terms of second and manageable, third and manageable. So it's interesting. And I just thought, you know, credit to. Uh, the Nashville Post get Michael Gallagher for that piece there. I thought it was an interesting talking point because if there's one thing I think that if you're going to make that philosophical shift away from Asher O'Hara, then you got to just ride with the guy you have in Bailey Hockman. 100%. Uh, so we'll see if they're able to uh, adjust their strategy moving forward and maybe pick up some, uh, you know, some more wins. 
in the SEC, we had Georgia playing UAB and winning that game 56 to 7. Uh, look, Georgia totaled 539 yards in this game. UAB converted only one third down. Tyler Johnson threw three interceptions. We talked about it a bit last week. This Georgia defense is just, you know, pretty darn close to the national standard at this point in, you know, in the season. And uh, odds are we're going to see them competing for uh, a national title in in a few months. Uh, But, you know, given how thorough this this beating was for UAB, does this concern you at all or is it just forget about it and move on? Forget about it and move on. Georgia is the real deal. They are as real as they come, especially defensively. I mean, Tyler Johnson, we've talked about him at nauseum. You can't fault him or Bryant Vincent or any of the things we've talked about on previous podcasts when going into defense like Georgia. So for UAB fans listening, apologies for the lack of a recap on this one. But, I mean, you saw the game. There's not much to recap. Right. I mean, anytime you see a scoreline that's 56 to 7, you know, I I have faith that most of our listeners can deduce what happened there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, but then we have uh, FAU uh, who beat Georgia Southern handily 38 to 6. And this is the type of FAU attack that we've all gotten used to seeing the last four or five years. Over 500 total yards of offense, four touchdown passes for Nikosi Perry. Um, you know, Willie Taggart's team really just controlled the clock in order to secure this one. You do want to see him clean the penalties up. They had eight of them for 80 yards. And against a more competent offense, that is going to hurt you. Uh, and hats off to the defense as well for forcing two turnovers. Sure. Yeah. And listen, here's the thing. I guess if you have one concern or if I have one concern, as I mentioned, I watched this game along with the middle Tennessee game at halftime. This was a 10, six game. And there was that little bit of feeling that's like, uh Oh, Georgia Southern's hanging around. They run that triple option offense. Oh, and two with a loss in Boca, but 10 points is going to fire up the folks in Boca and, you know, the Owls fans as far as, Wanting that lane train back, right? But Nikosi Perry comes out, and it just shows the reason why you bring him in and the level of talent he is. Nikosi tweeted something that I thought was really interesting, Joe. He tweeted after the UF game that this is the happiest he's ever been. And anyone who knows a little bit about his story and being part of a quarterback rotation at UM, you know, being a highly touted recruit out of Ocala, and maybe, just maybe, I don't, I've never spoken to Nikosi, so I can't attest to this, but. Anyone who knows Ocala versus Miami, for our listeners who don't know, that's like comparing, I don't know, you know, West Lafayette, Indiana to the Bronx. <laughs> you know, they are two completely different places. And maybe it just got to a point with some of the struggles there at, at Miami that Nikosi had that he just needed a little bit smaller, you know, a change of scenery in a smaller environment. And luckily for him and Willie Taggart and Owls fans, that's an hour up the road, up 95 in Boca. It's good to see, again, the 331 and four touchdowns. I will say something that is a bit concerning, and I have mentioned this on an FAU, FIU podcast that I do, you know, talking about the Shula Bowl rivalry. Joe, 
the running back rotation for UF, for UF, let's try this again, for FAU is interesting in that, listen, I don't know how you feel about this. Malcolm Davidson two years ago looked to be one of the best running backs in Conference USA. Larry McCammon as a freshman had a defined role. Johnny Ford as a freshman three years ago was one of the top players in the American. It's nice to have that depth, but there just seems to be, just like we talk about quarterbacks and getting that rhythm, the same thing with these backs at FAU, that they're not getting in rhythm as they normally would because you know you're going to get your one series and then it's time to come off the field. And even a guy like McCammon, Joe, I, you know, you'll get a chance to see this. I'm sure at some point you'll have a chance to sit down and watch uh, an FAU game from start to finish. He's being used as the fullback in the eye. And listen, as a former fullback, I'm all in favor of bringing back the position, but he's a running back, right? So that just seems like a forced way to get these guys on the field. So I know, you know, I'm kind of nitpicking and pulling out a critique out of a, 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 you know, 28 point victory, but I just think it is something to keep an eye on going forward. Because as I mentioned, that offense didn't really get going until they broke out with a 21 point third quarter. Yeah. Um, real quick. I gave the Ocala Chili's three stars on Yelp and I love Chili's. So that, that tells you what you're, you're getting into with Ocala, Florida. Uh, but the fact that, FAU's rushing attack was as successful as it was in this game. And the fact that, you know, like you mentioned, it is hard to get in a rhythm when you keep getting subbed out for the next man up. Is that kind of a testament to how how tough FAU's like run blocking is right now? The fact that they're able to see so much success with this many rotating backs? Listen, when you have guys like Desmond Noel and, you know, some of the others up front there, um, Nick Weber and mid center, you know, for every um, uh, man gold and the other guy um, at guard, they have a lot of talent up front. So again, this is effort full disclosure. It is a nitpick on my part to talk about the running ro- the running back rotation. It's just something as a larger context, a larger you know kind of picture going forward. You like to see that offense get out to a bit of a quicker start because listen, Joe, you know this. Not every team offensively is, is Georgia Southern, which were down their starting quarterback as was. Their backup quarterback, Cam Ransom, got injured to the point where Amari Jones, the former Tulane running back, had to play quarterback. Now, of course, Georgia Southern, that's not, you know, it's not that drastic, right, to have the running back come in and play quarterback. But you get the point that I'm making here. Not every offense. If you do that, and I don't want to, you know, fire up FAU fans, but you do that against Bailey Zappi. We know the budding rivalry that FAU fans, if Western was Bailey Zappi and Western, but you could be down 28 points, right? So that's just kind of my point. Yeah, no, it's definitely fair. And I think it's, you know, uh, you know, if we're going to get into the FAU versus Western, you know, thing on the football field, it's a testament to how important ball control is when you play, you know, an offense that can score quickly, which is not the category Georgia Southern falls into. But FAU is definitely going to face those types of offenses a, a few times before the end of the season. So that's absolutely something to watch. Um, let's talk about Charlotte and Gardner Webb 49ers win this one 38 to 10. Look, not Chris Reynolds best day through the air with only 102 yards and two interceptions in this one. Um, but I will say the Charlotte running game by committee though, was solid with 306 yards and four touchdowns. Uh, you know, we just talked about how, you know, switching out running backs like that can kind of disrupt the offense's rhythm and not work out for the best in, in every occasion. But in this one, it it kind of did. Great defensive performance as well for the 49ers holding this Gardner-Webb offense, who has a pretty decent quarterback, like we mentioned last week, to only 50 yards passing. Yeah, Joe, you know, two things you touched on. It seems like the theme of this podcast is going to be rushing attack and run defense. Any part of you, before I kind of give my thoughts on the game, any part of you a little bit concerned that, was it, 
40 carries, I believe, for a buck 61 that Gardner Webb had against Charlotte. And listen, they helped if my quick math here, that's four yards per carry, 4.1 if you round up. That's certainly not a you know crazy good performance by Gardner Webb, but I guess I'm just looking for that shutdown performance coming off of what they gave up against Duke. But that being said, you know, you can't be mad at it. I guess I'm just curious if that kind of raised your eyebrow at all. A little bit. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, with that week one game, look, Mateo Durand is fantastic. So when you look at um, Charlotte's performance against Duke, you it's very easy to look at that one and kind of write it off as Mateo Durand just being very, very good. Um, but with this Gardner-Webb uh, rushing attack and what they were able to accomplish, it it I don't want to say it's concerning, but it's kind of like, huh, if there is, uh, you know, a hole in this Charlotte armor right now, it's probably that. Um, there's probably something there that, uh, that you need to kind of be aware of and improve quickly if you're Will Healy. Sure. So I guess, you know, that's where I really wanted your POV there. It's something that don't want to make a, a, you know, a mountain out of a molehill as far as the 40 carats. I think it was 40 for 161, you know, four yards, four yards a pop, whatever. But you'd like to see them after giving up the amount of rushing yards that they did to Mateo Durant kind of hold Gardner Webb. I don't know, you know, under 100, just something given the fact that they're an FCS team and Charlotte, of course, is FBS. But as you mentioned, just good for Charlotte to get that win, go 2-0, and keep the momentum going from the Duke game. The two interceptions from Chris Reynolds, while a little bit concerning because you don't want the turnovers, it does seem as if they have something going there in the rushing attack that is it's a pleasant surprise given the relative you know inexperience they had at the position. Calvin Camp, the 5'7", buck 80 returner who came to Charlotte as a receiver, two-star receiver, you know, playing running back. Uh, Siobhan McEachern, I've been practicing that name because I will butcher it eventually. I think I nailed it there. He's come on really well, even to the point where Elijah Turner, who was really the guy I had my eye on entering the year, Joe, has chosen to leave the program. Former three-star recruiters recruited by the likes of Michigan and North Carolina and others. So he's chosen to leave the program because other guys are getting those snaps. So somewhere in that rotation, Will Healy has found a group of two or three guys who can come on and do well. Uh, I believe um, uh, things that Shadrick Bird, I believe is the other back as well, who's playing really well. Yeah, the the Iowa transfer looks very comfortable in uh, in this rushing offense. And uh, in one more quick thing that I, I wanted to mention, but it, it slipped my mind um, when we're talking about Charlotte's rushing defense. You know, four yards might not sound four yards per carry might not sound like a lot, but when you think about the fact that you have you know four downs to go ten and you can go twelve in in three, you know that can add up very quickly. Undoubtedly, no, you, great point. So we'll, we'll monitor Will Healy's team's progress uh, over the course of the year, but 2-0, can't really complain about that too much. Um, and then let's talk about UTSA just smacking Lamar, 54-0. First ever shutout in program history and the largest margin of victory in program history. Uh, nice little return to the Alamo Dome for the Roadrunners. Uh, backups got a lot of playing time in this one, which you love to see, particularly Josh Adkins, at quarterback, who we haven't seen in quite a while, I think since 2019, thanks to an upper body injury a while back. Uh, but he threw for 134 yards and two touchdowns in this one. Uh, and, you know, defensively, they pitched a shutout and held him to just over 200 total yards of offense. Basically a perfect day for the Roadrunners. Yeah, not too much more to add there. Just to kind of return home to the dome that you would have wanted for Jeff Trailers Club as they start 2-0, you know, 54 points. 
Frank Harris doing his thing. You only need him for about a half or so. Josh Atkins to come in. And, that, and you know what, um, Joe, I think that's key. We want to knock on wood and hope that Frank Harris stays healthy for an entire year. But the fact that you can get Josh Atkins some quality reps, not bad at all. But again, UTSA just looks like a really complete team so far. That they do. Um, and then let's head back to CUSA East. Marshall 44, North Carolina Central 10. Uh, herd start 2-0. Another strong defensive performance from Marshall, particularly on the defensive line. Three more sacks for that group after having, I believe it was nine in the Navy game. Uh, a better day for Grant Wells with three touchdowns and 344 yards. Did have an interception, though, but all in all, I feel good about this Marshall team heading into a two-week stretch where they're going to face ECU and App State. Joe, what's impressed me most about Marshall has not been the amount of points they've put up, right? You would think, at least last week, that they're going to do that. And yes, the amount of points they put up in week one was definitely nice to see as well. I always thought the offense would come along. They have talented guys. Grant Wells, we believe, is talented. And we talk about Talit Keaton and Corey Gamage and Nas McDaniel, a lot of the guys. They, they have talented guys. You can save your gains. It's, as you mentioned, the defense. When you're replacing a Darius Hodge and a Devontae Beckett and some of those guys, the fact that they're getting the pressure that they're getting and the type of plays behind the line of scrimmage and forcing turnovers, we can't sleep on the herd. I know we've said that, you know, there may be some other teams that may challenge and maybe that the herd might need a year under Charles Huff to get going. Well, they're getting going pretty well right now in two games into his first season in uh, Huntington. Yeah. And I mean, listen, if anybody is awake when it comes to the herd, I think it's me. I'm pretty sure I picked them to win the East earlier in the, in the summer. That's fair. I did not. So you are, you are certainly awake on the herd. Coach Huff <laughs> would be happy to hear. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I would hope so. Uh, but it, real quick on um, Marshall's defense, like in particular, uh, Abraham Bowplan. I mean, I know it's only two games into the season, but when you look at this one, you know, four sacks or sorry, four total tackles, one sack had a tackle for loss. You know, when it when you look at the performance of this defensive line, it, part of me is starting to think, like, should we be looking amongst this group for uh, CUSA Defensive Player of the Year? I mean, listen, I, it's through two games. You can't be mad sure, at, at yeah. you know, the performance they've had. I will say this. I am still partial to D'Angelo Malone just because when we talk about resume and, you know, prior performance, but D'Angelo Malone's got to get going soon. So uh, we'll, we'll, let's revisit that topic in a couple of weeks and see how, uh, how I'm feeling then. No, that's fair. It's it's early in the season, but you know it's it's hard to not get excited when you see the kind of intensity that Bo Plan and the rest of that defensive line are playing with currently. Let's go down to the battle for the Bayou Buckets. I believe is the name of this rivalry uh, with Houston and Rice. Uh, Houston Cougars win this one, forty-four to seven. Uh, you know, there's not too much to say except that, you know, the concern for Rice's offense is continuing to grow, uh, really weren't able to do anything that impressive. And, you know, Houston was a program that, that needed a win. So you could kind of tell by the type of energy that they brought into this game. But, uh, I, I certainly didn't expect Rice to win this game, but really thought they put up more of a fight. Joe, I don't have anything as far as this game just because 44-7 speaks for itself. I'm going to go directly into what I think is most concerning if you're a Rice fan. How are we feeling through year four of Mike Bloomgren in terms of offense? And again, I mentioned this in my three things. We learned in Conference USA, 
Mike Bloomgren came from Stanford with a real track record of producing, you know, not necessarily high-powered offenses in the way you think of Texas Tech and, you know, teams are going to sling the ball over the field, but his offenses put up points, right? That, that you know, Stanford and, you know, Toby Gerhardt and Christian McCaffrey, they put up points. Through four seasons, the Rice Owls have not been ranked any higher than 100th in FBS football and points per game. I believe that was 22.4 last year under Mike Collins' leadership at quarterback. While it was never officially announced, seemingly the feeling out of Rice is that Mike Collins had to retire due to you know, medical situation with concussions. We can't confirm that. That's just kind of the feeling um, uh, that came out of, out of Rice, right? That's why he's not on the team this year. And yes, we can say this about any team, Joe, that if you don't have a quarterback, you're not going to put up points. But uh, it's something you have to examine because Mike Bloomgren, when you're consistently in averaging 13 points, 16 points, 18 points, and now in year four, the lack of productivity with two touchdowns and six interceptions from Wiley Green and Luke McCaffrey, almost a Christian. I don't know. Listen, I'm not out here trying to fire Mike Bloomgren. I just think it's something you have to be concerned about because we're now going on an entire, you know, stretch of rice football in which they have not been able to put points on the scoreboard. You know, I mean, I feel like because of their record, we always end up comparing the progress of, of rice and the progress of UTEP, right? Like we went from, Oh, holy crap. UTEP scored to, Oh, look at that. UTEP won. Now we're getting into a point where UTEP, you know, granted their strength of schedule is not amazing, but we're getting to a point where we're expecting UTEP to win games a decent chunk of the time. And now with rice, we're, we're still at the point where it's like, Oh, rice scored good for them. But like, that's not enough to be competitive, no matter what division you were playing, whether it's CUSA, the SEC, the NFL, or like the X league in Japan, like you need to be able to score more points. That is the thing, right? And listen, whether or not we believe that UTEP's capable of winning 50% of their games this year, time will tell, but we still feel with rice that it's almost as if you know their defense is going to perform well, well enough that they probably could win the game, unless they're completely outmatched, right? We've seen games where they're playing Texas and stuff like that, that they're not going to win. But in terms of playing Conference USA, we've seen teams where they're going to go out there and maybe allow 14, 17, 19 points going into the fourth quarter, and then there's just no offensive help and the game's going to get away from them. And that, again... You can say that about any team as far as not having quarterback play, and you can't control the fact that Mike Collins had to step away from football. But they've had talented guys, Brad Rosner, Austin Trammell. The running back situation there with Colin Griffin and Jordan Myers, that isn't yielding many results either. So it's just something that I think we have to keep a very close and dedicated eye on as the season goes on. Listen, it's one thing if you go three and nine and you're competitive, right? And not to say that Rice fans be happy with that, but if you're competitive, that's one thing. But if you're still playing the same brand of football you were in 2018, you got to start examining some things then. Yeah, and I mean, I've said it before, and I think this game was a good example. Like, it seems like Mike Bloomgren is just trying to run the exact same kind of offense that he ran at Stanford, but without, you know, without Stanford level talent. Like, the the type of running backs he has now are just are not Christian McCaffrey or uh, Toby Gearhart. I that might that might precede Mike Boomgren's tenure in Stanford. But anyway, um, when you come into a situation like Rice, you have to make adjustments because the things that you do at you know that type of institution are, are just not going to work when you have the recruiting 
weaknesses that Rice has, unfortunately. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it there. And yeah, you know, that, I think Toby Garrett proceeds my Bloomberg, so I misspoke there. But the point of the fact of the matter is this, you know, the level of talent at Stanford, as you mentioned, is different than what they have at Rice. So, you know, I believe Tyler Gaffney, yeah, that was the year I think he ran for like 25 touchdowns at Stanford. So he was uh, in that running back rotation. There's not Toby Gerhardt, but the point still remains. So let's move on to a game that you were in attendance for this weekend, Eric, and that was uh, Texas State and FIU. Bobcats win that one 23 to 17. And I'm curious to get your thoughts and perspective on this one. But uh, for me, consistency seemed to be a huge issue for FIU. Uh, it was also just a lack of offensive execution with the three lost fumbles, uh, which is a shame because their defense did a pretty good job, relatively speaking, with four sacks and nine tackles for loss. Uh, when it came down to it in the fourth quarter, uh, it looked like just FIU had several chances to go ahead and possibly even win the game. But you quickly saw any positive breaks that they ran into get negated by offensive line mistakes, frankly. Uh, you know, Bordenschlager would get heavy pressure which impacted his ability to get the ball downfield. They had a key holding penalty with about six minutes left that wiped out a pass interference call that would have put them at least in field goal range. And, uh, you know, this one ultimately went to overtime and, and Texas State just had better execution down the stretch. Yeah, Joe, with respect to Southeast Louisiana and Louisiana Tech, I would be able to say that this may have been the best CUSA ball game of the weekend, the Everett Withers Bowl. Of course, FIU's defensive coordinator going up against his former team and the man who replaced him in Jake Spavitaw with a lot on the line in desperate need of a win. And they were able to get that. You know, Texas State jumped out to a 10-0 lead. And then really from there, FIU was able to take over and kind of, you know, really get things going offensively. It seemed like part of the game plan, Joe, for FIU was to attack Texas State's DBs down the field. When I asked Max Bordenschlager postgame, you mentioned the holding call that wiped out a pass interference. Joe, there were about four or five pass interference calls against Texas State throughout that game where it just looked as if the game plan was, hey, go on a nine route, and if you don't catch it, you'll probably get a call. That's exactly what happened. I remember seeing Texas State defensive back D.C. Williams getting just fired up in the face of a defensive uh, of a, a referee but he really was getting beat all game by FCS transfer Tyrese Chambers. I believe he led both teams with receiving. I think he had four catches for 76 yards and a touchdown that game. So uh, really was part of the game plan. But as you mentioned, what really snake bit FIU, Devontae Price in his four years at FIU prior, it only fumbled twice and lost once. Lost one of them, excuse me. He fumbles twice in one game. And after I mentioned, because it was just was so bizarre, I had to ask, you know, FIU's SID, Tyler Brain and Christina Anderson. I asked them, when's the last time Devontae Price fumbled, lost fumble? Because he just hasn't done that. And we had kind of scramble and look it up. And we, you know, I tweeted out that he hadn't done it so in a long time. And then he did it again in the next quarter. So I probably jinxed him there on that one. So sorry, Devontae. But the last thing, as far as the FIU takeaway, Max Bortenschlager, you talked about some of the excuse me, you talked about some of the issues in terms of protection. Butch Davis noted that on the last play, specifically the sack strip or the strip sack, I should say, that none of the guys were open. And Max, of course, is not going to throw any of his guys under the bus, but he did feel that maybe, you know, he came off of one read that he was looking for Rivaldo Fairweather in the end zone and nothing was there and probably should have got rid of the football. There did seem to be some times as if when that pass interference, or excuse me, when they weren't able to kind of generate offense via the pass interference, some of the things were covered up pretty well, and that probably played a factor in Max not you know, having some time, but also 17-34 for, I believe, 263. Memory serves me correct, and two touchdowns. 
The numbers look good, but Joe, there were several missed reads, and FIU fans were very upset post game, especially seemingly one at the end of regulation in which he had Rivaldo Fairweather open, and Max came out and said it. He said, "Hey, you know, I've got to play better. There were certainly some throws and some plays I'd like to have back, and I'll you know be in the lab and try to fix those things." But all in all, in terms of the FIU side of things, disappointing because for them. It's crucial that they get out to a quick start. They go to Texas Tech this week and then go to Central Michigan. If they lose both of those ball games, they're one and three heading to Boca, and they have not beaten the Owls since 2016. Yeah, I, we've talked about this with a few different teams. Like winning in this early stretch of the season is is so important if you want to secure a, a decent bowl berth or even like put yourself in a solid position for like your division title race, but. Yeah, I'm glad you hit on with Bortenslager. For me, like I just rewatched this game this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday, and I kind of you know enjoyed my coffee with some with some CUSA football. Um, Don't we all? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bortenslager had some of these throws downfield that some of them were just fantastic, just hitting the like the outside shoulder on some of these streak routes down the field. And, you know, he had a few over the middle to, to his tight ends that were in traffic that were just fantastic. But then, yeah, as, as it got later and later in the game and, you know, I, I don't blame him if he, if he got tired with the kind of pressure that he was dealing with for most of the game, but it, it degraded quickly, unfortunately for him. Yeah, and again, to kind of piggyback off what Max said, he definitely felt that there were some throws, especially down the stretch, that he wishes he would have had back. And that could be a byproduct. You know, maybe Texas State seeing some things that they didn't see in the first half. I will say this, especially – and listen, you got to give Texas State a lot of credit. We're at a point now with Devontae Price where 23 for a buck 11 – that's a nice game for, you know, I'm, I bet you Rick Stockstill would take 23 for a buck 11 out of any of his backs. And at FIU, we're, we're like, what the hell happened to Devontae? <laughs> you know, so just the fact that they were all kind of able to bottle him up. I say that in air quotes, bottle him up a little bit, probably forced some things as far as the FIU passing attack. But yeah, it definitely be interesting to see what happens because it is a big difference between going to this Texas Tech game 2-0 and versus 1-1. and And, you know, for CSA fans, you may be curious, Texas Tech uh, had a furious Four-point victory over Stephen F. Austin. So it wasn't like they're exactly, you know, world beaters right now. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit in terms of what we can expect uh, with FIU playing Texas Tech. Uh, but for now, uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Louisiana Tech and Southeast Louisiana. Bulldogs win that one 45-42. to 42. And, you know, again, I tried to tell people the Southeast Louisiana has the kind of offense that you can't take your eye off of if you're a team like Louisiana Tech. Uh, but the App State transfer, Marcus Williams Jr., did his part with 99 yards on 18 carries. So not a bad day for him and uh, not a bad day for Austin Kendall either. Um, you know, I think they did just enough to control the uh, the clock and the momentum of the game. Uh, and then the defense forced three turnovers against, again, a pretty good offense, which you could argue was probably the difference maker in a game that was this close. Yeah, you know, when you talk about Southeast Louisiana, you got to start with Cole Kelly, the former Arkansas quarterback. And why am I starting with him instead of Tech? The man had over 530 yards of total offense, 44 of 59 for three touchdowns. So we have 44 of 59 for 495, three touchdowns, two interceptions. And then had 14 carries, 42 yards, and two touchdowns on the ground. So 
Louisiana Tech just got hit by a bus off a quarterback. And, you know, I felt it was important to note that he is a, a, you know, a former SEC quarterback. It's not like he's just, you know, someone coming in and putting up these gaudy numbers. But that, again, a little bit concerning when you look at Skip Holtz and some of the defensive talent they have is Trey Baldwin, Tyler Grubbs, you know, B.J. Williamson. You'd like to think at some point in time that they'd be able to kind of get through and shut some things down. Um, I see Levi Bell here had two sacks, a name that – we haven't heard from Willie Baker. I haven't, I haven't seen much of him at all this year. But nevertheless, as you mentioned, uh, just a really solid day for Austin Kendall. I mean, it wasn't necessarily great. It was enough to get the job done, the 19-27 for 217. And then Marcus Williams, 18 carries for 99 yards. It's good to see him, you know, kind of get his chance of being the RB1 after, as you mentioned, the four years at App State and being part of that platoon shared role. So all things considered, it's great that Tech got the win and they just ran into a quarterback who was a man on a mission. Yeah, and I mean, going back even like five, six years, this this Southeast Louisiana team, or, or even longer than that, this this program is amongst the FCS teams that are extremely competitive when it comes down to the playoff races at the uh, at the end of the season, usually. Um, and like you mentioned, with with Skip Holtz, I think, and uh, and his team, really, you want to see if they are just able to kind of get back to that like uh, bowl eligibility spot that they've been the last you know, more than half a decade at this point. So this is a big step in that direction, but let's see if they can kind of keep it going against, uh, you know, the remainder of their non-con schedule and then into conference play based on what I've seen so far. I am not sure they're going to continue to live up to my expectations for them because I thought the West, I, you know, I, I still picked UAB to win the West and I thought UTSA were going to be right there, but I thought Louisiana Tech was going to maybe sneak into that conversation as they do most times. But after what I've seen these these last two weeks, I'm I'm cooling on that. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't as high on Tech as you were, just based on the fact that they are replacing a, a fair amount of guys. It's over the past two seasons in terms of you know guys like Amik Robinson and Algeria Sneed, those that level of talent in the NFL, and then you know. I think, and it's funny we talk about quarterback play, and I, I, I'll quickly add this note on Cole Kelly as well. He's still 6'8", 260. So that just kind of show you the amount of a man they're playing against. But, and we can save this conversation for a little bit later on, but it's not to say that, you know, Austin Kendall or Luke Anthony haven't performed admirably during their time at Tech. But I think for Tech fans, this makes you appreciate one J. Mar Smith just a little bit more considering the steady play that you had for him over three years. Right, Joe? Yeah, listen, like Jamar Smith was fantastic. Like, I mean, with when you look at the amount of games that he won, you know, he was never perfect. I mean, you have the, you know, third and goal from their own eight or whatever that one play was against Mississippi State. It, it was never all, you know, sunshine and rainbows during that era of Louisiana Tech football. But yeah, he was he was as solid as anybody. So it's just it's just, a, just a point worth, you know, food for thought as Tech tries to replace quarterback. I mean, we can say that, quite frankly, Joe, across the USA and some of the quarterbacks are trying to find their footing, replacing guys who are really steady starters in this league for a long time. Yes. Yes, you can. Um, and then we have SMU and North Texas, uh, that rivalry game. Mustangs win that one thirty five to twelve. Uh, look, I mean, that North Texas defense showed that they still have a long way to go, unfortunately. I mean, this is pretty much what we expected. Like SMU's offense was going to score, uh, you know, 
several touchdowns. North Texas was going to try to keep pace, uh, but ultimately, you know, but they were able to shut down North Texas and hold them to only two scores. Yeah, Joe. So, you know, as far as SMU, we've talked about that high-powered offense and really what you expected, right, in terms of Ulysses Bentley the fifth and former UNT running back Trey Siggers, them forming a nice one-two punch. Then Tanner Mordecai, who was a, you know, power five quarterback who dropped down, and I said that in air quotes, to the group of five level, he certainly is a stud at quarterback. So we can be very happy that UNT won week one, but they're not in any position to really contend with that level of talent especially as we mentioned the high-powered offense at smu is i guess i just think the big takeaway and maybe thinking a little bit surprised and definitely curious your thoughts on this the quarterback situation there at north texas it was kind of a great leading on my part uh, albeit unintentional they're still trying to replace you know a pretty damn good quarterback themselves there in mason fine and they're getting fair production but it doesn't seem like that battle's fully closed what says you yeah, I mean, first of all, feel free to, you know, pat yourself on the back anytime you want with me. Uh, second of all, yeah, you know, it it's funny. Dan and Emily actually kind of touched on this last week when they were previewing this game on their show. Seth Luttrell is still kind of searching for that big offensive piece to replace Mason Fine that had him in these, you know, P5 coaching vacancy conversations, you know, year in and year out for a minute there. And based on what we've seen out of this North Texas offense so far, they still don't have that quite figured out. Um, You know, granted, with that system, it's so fast-paced that, you know, ultimately you're going to need – you know, a quarterback who a understands it, but B it's going to make your quarterback look solid. If they, you know, have the competency and, and understand the nuances of, of it. But look so far, Jace Reuter and, and Austin Ani, you know, unfortunately Mason fine, they are not. So with that, they're going to have to continue to, you know, just, just try to find somebody who, you know, this offense just clicks for mentally. You hit the nail on the head there, you know, and listen, Jace Ruder's a heck of a talent. I mean, he's the kind of guy when you look at, take, for example, what Charlotte's doing with James Foster. That's the kind of guy, 6'3", 225, you know, rocket arm was still uh, Peyton Manning commercial, right? 6'5", 230, rocket laser arm, <laughs> you know, same thing here with, with Jace Ruder, but just seemingly it's getting the most out of that on the field. And it's only two games. We'll see what happens. But uh, it just goes to show you when you have a guy who may be a little bit unheralded, like a Jamar Smith or a Mason Fine, it's very hard to replace those guys. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, if we go back a few years, I wouldn't say Mason Fine was unheralded. I, I think he won conference offensive player of the year if, if memory serves but um but yeah no i don't mean to disparage jace Ruder at all i mean the guy threw the ball 51 times in a game like you have to have a, a very high level of competency when it comes to playing the quarterback position if your coach trusts you to throw the ball that much and i mean it, this was a losing effort where they only scored 12 points but he threw for 366 yards like you know, normally that's that's a really good game, but it just kind of shows how weird, uh, for lack of a better term, this North Texas system is. Sure. And really quick, when I say unheralded, I just meant out of high school. You know, we all know the, ah, the, yes. the conference that Mason Fine had at Conference USA, just for a point of reference. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I feel like we could talk about Mason Fine all day, but at the same time, like, I'm surprised he hasn't quite 
found a fit in the professional ranks yet, but you know, that's a whole separate conversation. Um, with that, then I guess let's talk about Old Dominion and Hampton. Monarchs win that one 47 to 7 on their home turf. Uh, well deserved moment for the ODU program, in my opinion. Uh, DJ Mack Jr. got to stretch his legs a bit, throwing a touchdown and running for three. The rest of Old Dominion's out of conference schedule is pretty dang difficult. So at least they can pad their record a little bit with a win here. And uh, this was also Ricky Ronnie's first win as Old Dominion head coach. As you mentioned, DJ Mack, I think this is the type of performance that if you're a Monarch fan, you can expect. Very similar to his, and you've probably heard me reference this game a million times, but 2019 American Conference Championship title game in which he had you know five or at least six total touchdowns, threw for two, ran for four en route to MVP honors. That's the type of player he is, right? He's an adequate passer. He's not a great passer, but when you give him the opportunity to use his legs, especially down there in between the 20s, right? Inside the red zone, he's gonna he's gonna you know find pay dirt. So it's a great thing there. The only downside I think when you come out of this game for ODU, I believe they lost Elijah Lala Davis at running back, who's one of the more experienced running backs. And if, as you mentioned, you know their schedule isn't going to get any easier. And especially when you're a team like ODU, that the big thing that's hampering you is death. We'll have to see how that plays out. But all in all, just a nice homecoming, the first home game in Norfolk in a very long time for. That's a very, you know, listen, ODU and, you know, Joe, we might not get the greatest ODU interaction in terms of underdog dynasty, but that's a very proud fan base, somewhat a fan base there in Norfolk that's really passionate. I mean, if, if I recommend following Harry Minium on Twitter, because if you want anything ODU related, he is the man, he's the institution there in Norfolk. And uh, yeah, this could see that fan base get out there and be able to enjoy some football live. Ricky Ronnie gets his first win. Yeah, I mean, all Dominion fans are fun man like we have done a fair amount of old dominion content over the last four or five years and the interactions always you know solid and 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 fun um so it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to grow with the new stadium and all but in terms of on the field like i watched a little bit of this and you know you mentioned dj mac jr the athletic ability with this kid is just off the charts so, you know, if you're going to, you know, be more or less rebuilding a program after everything that they've had to go through the last two and a half years or so, it really helps to have somebody like that guy with the reins of your offense. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. I mean, again, when you talk about just really how athletic he is, it, it just goes to show, again, he's going to be a major weapon for ODU as they get, you know, into Conference USA play and again. While they're building that depth, you know, in the running back position and losing Lala Davis, and he's going to be a great weapon down there for him to be able to kind of, you know, find pay dirt, as I mentioned, in the red zone. Real quick to wrap up the recap of last week, Southern Miss 37, Grambling 0. Uh, the hand can move a little further away from the panic button in Hattiesburg after last week's loss to South Alabama. Brown uh, for June 62 yards. Uh, Grambling was held to just 141 total yards of offense. Uh, can't really ask for much more for Southern Miss in this type of game. The big thing for Southern Miss is they put together a complete game, and especially coming off the disappointment against South Alabama, that's something you had to really be happy to see. Frank Gore Jr. You know, has a nice day. Jason Brownlee finds the end zone. Trey Lowe looks to be productive. and That's the kind of thing you want, as I mentioned, when you're trying to, and Joe, I'm sure you heard Will Hall's 
post-game comments saying he's the biggest fraud in 50 years. That's not quite exactly the case. I'm sure I can think of others, right? You know, not necessarily in football, but in life. But nevertheless, it's good to see for all things Southern Miss football to get their confidence back and get a win. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a we had an interesting week of CUSA football with those score lines. Hopefully we'll see some more uh you know, continue to see some more positive results for CUSA as we move into week three. Uh before that though, do want to touch on a couple uh just interesting stadium instances that we saw over the weekend. Uh, you know, namely one from outside the conference. Um at the Miami game, we saw the uh, we saw a cat uh, get you know saved by a group of fans that fell from a, a second flight of stands and got caught in an American flag. Uh, you know, proud to be an American in that moment. <laughs> but um, you know, one of the funny things about that conversation on Twitter was just like, how do you know how does how does a cat get in that kind of predicament within the stadium? And as a cat owner, I can tell they go wherever they want. You know, you, you can't really keep a cat locked down whether you are in a one-story house or a, a giant football stadium like what Miami uh, has has for themselves. My friend Joe Londergan, have you ever been to Hialeah, Florida before? <laughs> um, it's been a long time, but yes. <laughs> um, anyone who has been to Hialeah knows that uh, if you go to Abelita's backyard, <laughs> you can find a cat probably involved in some sort or form of Santeria. Um, and uh, yeah, Joe, just by that look you're giving me shows at a uh, Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, not too far from Hialeah. It, it don't question how a cat somehow made into Hard Rock Stadium because there are plenty of cats just roaming Hialeah. I, I believe this probably laid a curse on their poor granddaughter's ex-boyfriend who cursed them. And that cat is somehow a part of said curse. Just, I know this is rambling here, but I'm going deep, deep South Florida for you. The FIU fans of this podcast will absolutely get it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, speaking strictly from someone who just really likes cats, I mean, usually they're up to something nefarious. They play their hand, uh, their cards close to their chest, but even out here, usually cats are out to mess stuff up. So I, I can, I can see that. Then at the Southern Miss game, we we had a as first reported by uh, Raymond Reeves, we had a woman go into labor at the game. Uh, a, a, apparently, according to Southern Miss, uh, which is this was reported by our old boss Matt Brown, the woman did make it to a hospital in order to actually give birth. So the process, I guess, started at the stadium, but was, was completed thankfully at, at a hospital. So, you know, congrats to, to mother and child, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, I'm sure the uh, names there were not released to the public, but uh, you know, that's something you don't see every day. <laughs> Joe, what are your thoughts on pregnant folks going at like sporting events? Because uh, listen, I am not out to tell, you know, how do you enjoy your time being pregnant, but that's just, I can't think of a few places worse to, give birth, potentially give birth than a stadium full of people. <laughs> as, as we're recording this, you had a little bit of delay, Eric. So all I heard at first was, what are your thoughts on pregnant folks? <laughs> 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 and then the second part came in a little later. I was like, Oh, okay. I was like, where is he going with this? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on this, um, but 
I don't know. I mean, I think if you feel safe and if you are in a, a stadium and a venue that has, you know, accommodations for, you know, folks with limited mobility as, you know, women who are nine months pregnant sometimes are, then, you know, go for it. I think COVID definitely changes the conversation a little bit, but, you know, I mean, at a certain point too, you can't expect everybody to just, you know, stay in the house all the time, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know Southern Miss's venue that well from a fan perspective. So I can, I'm assuming they had the right accommodations, but if that's the case, then go for it. You know, I am not advocating anybody push their body past what they can handle, but I'm obviously only in my own body. Listen, I'm not saying what you can and can't do. I'm just saying, listen, man, it's like, I heard this story. I was, you know, I'll make this quick because we got a you know, preview week uh, three. Uh, Amber Theo Harris, who formerly worked for the NFL Network, she talked about giving birth on set and just the thought that she laughed at afterwards is that the first male, you know, her child was going to lay eyes on was going to be Warren Sapp and think that <laughs> Warren Sapp is dad. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's just, just certain things there. You know what I mean? I mean, sure. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I've, I've been telling people Warren Sapp is my dad for years, so I don't really <laughs> see what the problem is there. You are a certified QB killer, sir. <laughs> uh, all right. With that, then, let's jump into some week three previews. Um, to start things off on Saturday at 3.30 Eastern on CBS Sports Network, we have a Louisiana Tech hosting SMU. Uh, SMU favored by 12 and a half heading into that. Uh, look, the Mustangs, as they've proven the last couple of weeks, have a really high powered offense. Uh, you know, I'd even venture to say it's better than the offense that Louisiana Tech was faced with against Southeast Louisiana uh, last week. Um, you know, Tech, I, I think they will, you know, for a few touchdowns, keep this one relatively close. But at the same time, like, I, I don't think this defense is ready for that kind of challenge. Couldn't agree with you more in terms of Louisiana Tech. You know, they certainly – Skip Holtz teams are typically up to the challenge. They'll perform well. But I just think defensively, you know, I haven't really been too impressed as far as what I've seen, especially last week. I, I just think that – and listen, as a talented defense, as I mentioned, B.J. Williamson, you know, Tyler Grubbs, the guys they have, they just got to come out and show it. And this isn't exactly the type of offense that you come out and show anything against. So give me SMU. At the Alamo Dome, we have UTSA hosting Middle Tennessee State at 6 Eastern on ESPN+. Roadrunners favored by 12 and a half as of now. Uh, look, I mean, if everything continues going Jeff Trailer's way and everybody continues to stay healthy, I think this one could potentially get ugly. You know, UTSA has themselves figured out if they can kind of just continue to perfect their processes and get to that level of the well-oiled machine that we – you know, said that like UAB was at prior to the season, then I think they will run MTSU all the way back to Murfreesboro. And, you know, for MTSU, I think they're doing some good things. But as we talked about earlier in the show, uh, need to solidify that rushing game. And they need to just let Bailey Hockman do his thing and just not bother with this QB rotation thing that they're reportedly trying to do, in my opinion. No, you and I are on the same page there. Give me the road runners, but I am really intrigued to see what Middle Tennessee does at quarterback. And as you mentioned earlier, the rushing attack, will they be able to get something going? Not a defense that you really want to try that against. 
I think Frank Harris should have another field day against a defense in Middle Tennessee and Scott Schaefer's that's really trying to find their way for the third consecutive year. So I'll be taking the Roadrunners. At 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN3. Uh, Fordham is not one of those FCS teams that I think you really need to be concerned about. Uh, and look, anytime you have a, a college football team from New York City, it's more or less a bye week. I think FAU takes this one by a lot. Um, there's not even a money line on this one. So uh, give me the Owls by a lot. Listen, Fordham, they are a very nice FCS program. You know, one that I have come to learn a little bit about because current FIU offense coordinator Andrew Briner coached at Fordham. But nevertheless, while they have sent talent to the NFL, definitely not enough to hang with the Owls. So this should be a very easy day. And as I talk about that FAU offense needing a quick start, they should be able to get it. And if they don't, then we really have something to talk about next week, Joe. Yeah, Fordham lost to Monmouth 26 to 23 last week. And if you remember, Monmouth is the team that MTSU just stomped in the opening week. So uh, really should be no problem for the Owls. Then we have Marshall hosting East Carolina at 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, just on local TV, I believe. Marshall favored by 10. Uh, based on what I've seen out of this East Carolina team, they're doing some okay things, but ultimately I, I think this is going to be another example of an offensive line that Marshall's defensive line can just overpower. Um, but, you know, w- that's why they play the games. But ultimately I th- I'm happy with Marshall's progression, and I think they win this one by two scores. Yeah, Joe, I'm going to give you this. I think Marshall's going to win that game easily. And I'm going to turn this into the American podcast for a second. Holton Ehlers is a guy that I've expected big things from for quite a few years at ECU, excuse me. And he just still is up and down, inconsistent, good play, bad play. That's not going to be a formula or recipe for success against a Marshall defense that, as you pointed out, is performing really well. So give me the herd. If you want to consistently listen to somebody, uh, our own Dan Morrison specifically, uh, talk about how ECU continues to not live up to his expectations, uh, go listen to our American podcast. Um, And then we have Liberty hosting Old Dominion at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN3. Flames favored by 27 and a half uh, in this battle of Virginia teams. Um, Look, this Liberty team still has Malik Willis, who is – Probably one of the best quarterbacks in this draft class. Uh, dual threat guy. Very large dual threat guy. Uh, he's thrown for 371 yards through two weeks of the season. Uh, which, I mean, so is DJ Mack Jr. But I think Liberty is just a way more complete team. And this one isn't going to be close. So, I, since the moment that I had a chance to watch Liberty open up their 2020 year against FIU, they have been a buzzsaw, and it has been really interesting to watch what Hugh Freeze has been able to do with that program, despite losing out on some guys, as you may have remembered. They were going to get former FIU wideout Jeremiah Holloman this offseason, but that got tied up between the Panthers and <laughs> J.J. Holloman. So, he's not there, but nevertheless, when you have Malik Willis at quarterback and the dynamic player he is, you're talking about someone who this time next year will be talking about as a top 10, 15 pick in the NFL draft. So I'll be taking the Flames. Georgia State hosts Charlotte this week at 7 Eastern on ESPN+. What's really odd to me is Georgia State is actually favored in this game, according to Vegas, by four. From what I've seen out of Georgia State so far, I am unfortunately just like not impressed, which is a bummer because I really expected Sean Elliott to 
you know, have this team in a stronger spot. Uh, they lost to Army 43 to 10 to open the season. They lost to North Carolina 59 to 17 last week. And based on what we've seen out of Charlotte's offense so far, I think they have the potential to, uh, you know, maybe not hit the 50 point mark like their, you know, fellow North Carolinians did uh, last week. But, uh, you know, I, I think Charlotte wins this one fairly easily. So I'm surprised Georgia State is favored here. I'm surprised they're favored, and I do think Charlotte's going to win. I will say this, Joe. you got to keep an eye. Whenever you're talking about the Georgia State Panthers, you have to talk about Cornelius Brown the fourth, Quad Brown. He's the guy who, coming off of last year, you thought this was going to be his year to really ascend. Hasn't quite hit that yet. Now, as we saw, they played Army in North Carolina. North Carolina is certainly a very good team. Army, as we've seen, a very solid team on their own or in their own right, excuse me. So I think if there's any game that he's going to bounce back, it's against a Charlotte defense that is still trying to find themselves. Again, give me the 49ers. I think they're the more complete team. But keep an eye on Quad Brown. Yeah, I, I like Quad Brown. Um, like we talked about earlier, though, I think it's Charlotte's run defense that's kind of an issue. So unless he you know, really finds a way to exploit that. I think they'll be able to handle, uh, you know, his attack through the air there. Then we have Texas tech hosting FIU, which you will be in attendance at Eric. Uh, that is on ESPN plus as well as the big 12 network, uh, Texas tech favored by 20 heading into that game, which is at seven o'clock Eastern. Uh, you know, I think it's safe to say a fairly easy win for Texas tech here. Uh, not, uh, the national power they once were, but as FIU showed last week, there's some consistency issues that you have to worry about. And uh, look, this Texas tech offense is as fast paced as ever. So we'll see if they uh, can keep up. The only hope for FIU is anyone knows that Matt Wells and Texas tech, they've had their struggles defending the run over the past, really since his entire tenure at Texas tech, they've had their struggles defending the run. If Devonte price can get going early, and it's not like FIU has a small offensive line. They have an offensive line that will match size-wise with Texas Tech. They could keep it interesting, but I don't think in the end that they'll be able to, A, pop the upset, or B, maybe even cover the spread. So give me the Red Raiders, but they do have a formula, and that's going to be Devontae Price in the running game. Hope to see him bounce back. And then we have Southern Miss and Troy uh, in Hattiesburg, ESPN Plus, 7 o'clock Eastern. Troy favored by 10. Uh, you know, honestly, I think this one is has the potential to be one of the closer games of the weekend. Um, you know, Troy, let's look at their results so far this year. They lost to Liberty last week, 21 to 13, kept it close uh, against a really solid offense. Um, but in the opening week, they beat Troy 55 to three. Or I'm sorry, they beat Southern 55 to three. Troy did. Um, so, look, I mean, ultimately, I think I'm going to take Troy here. Um, I know Southern Miss still has uh, some issues to work out. Um, I think they're taking steps in the right direction based on what I saw against Grambling. But, you know, this Troy team is much better than Grambling. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they Southern Miss needs to take some steps forward if they want to keep this one competitive. I'm looking for, to be completely honest, a much more complete performance from the Golden Eagles, I think we'll see maybe that Golden Eagle team that teams were expecting that we were expecting entering week one. But with that being said, I do think Troy right now is a better football program overall. So give me Troy, the Trojans. But with that being said, I really want to keep an eye on this game to see what Trey Lowe and Will Hall can do because this is the first game. Okay, 
you know, you'd have liked to have seen it against uh, North Alabama or excuse me, South Alabama, but um, it didn't happen. Let's see what they can do against Troy. Can, you know, they cook up a game plan that can play to Trey Lowe's strengths and use Frank Gore and Jason Brownlee and others. Let's see what happens. But again, as I mentioned, give me Troy. North Texas hosting UAB, uh, 7.30 Eastern, UAB. Be favored by 12 heading into this one. Uh, look, UAB can control games with the best of them. This North Texas defense is still not very good. Uh, I think Tyler Johnson bounces back in this one in a big way. Um, you know, hopefully they just can shake off, uh, you know, whatever negative emotions that they uh, had from that that beating from Georgia last week. But it's a new day and a much, much more porous defense that they're facing. Much, much, much poorer defense and seemingly a UAB offense that when they're not facing Georgia has got some things worked out. So I'll be taking the Blazers. Then to round things off on the Longhorn Network, which is a thing (laughs) at eight o'clock on Saturday, Texas hosting Rice, Texas favored by 26 heading into this game. Um, If Rice covers this, I'll be surprised. Uh, Texas is... You know, still kind of finding their footing under Steve Sarkeesian, but, um, you know, this is a team that has a pretty solid offense and can score points um, against bad defenses, which Rice sort of has at this point. And then as we talked about, the offense is just, you know, they they need to instill some level of confidence right now based on what they've seen. And Luke McCaffrey and, and the rest of that offense is not doing that. Yeah, the big thing I will be keeping my eye on, as you mentioned, whether it's Luke McCaffrey or Wiley Green, what are they going to get? They unfortunately, or I shouldn't say unfortunately, um, they can't fall into the situation that we've seen some other programs fall into, which is spend the entire year playing you know, multiple quarterbacks. It's just not going to work. It's not productive for Wiley Green, who I believe is a redshirt sophomore in class, but should be a year ahead of that because of the COVID year. And then Luke McCaffrey, a younger quarterback, trying to find his footing. It's just it's not productive for either of those guys. So let's see if they can stick it out for you know an entire game against Texas and maybe show some signs of hope. But, of course, Longhorns will win. So it should be an entertaining week of football. Hopefully we see some CUSA upsets. Uh, but that's why they play the games. Excited to see what we find here. With that, we'll say thank you once again for joining in. Uh, Eric, come back to the West Coast anytime. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's uh, at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore at Eric C. Henry underscore and then at Underdog Dynasty as well. And uh, check out the sites for uh, game previews, recaps, um, you know, us opining about what teams should go to the new American Conference and uh, whatever else we come up with. Uh, so come back for more. We'll talk to you very soon. Happy football watching. Almost didn't say it, but I did. not